Hey, so before we get into today's episode, I just wanna let you guys know about my Patreon, which is something I finally have. Simple and sweet, if you wanna join my Patreon, make sure to look me up. It's patreon.com slash Illuminati, I think, or just type in my channel name and you'll find it right there. And if you sign up into Casper's pack before December 1st, you will be eligible for the very first pause from Casper, which means you're gonna get a handwritten letter from me and Casper, and I have doggy safe ink to stamp his paw print on it too. So if you wanna check it out, make sure to go over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Illuminati. I also have like extra episodes, private discord server. You can get a behind the scenes look at scripts and research for upcoming topics. And of course, join Casper's pack. So hope to see you over there and enjoy today's episode. I'm pretty sure by now we're all familiar with the conspiracies about Big Pharma and how they're horrible, awful, immoral people who just wanna push drugs. This mindset was not born out of nothing. Purdue epitomizes our pharmaceutical fears. They falsely marketed and pushed oxycodone for decades. And now in 2021, we're finally seeing some consequences for those actions. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Corporate Casket, where bad businesses go to die. Today, we're going to be talking about the Sackler family. You may or may not have heard of them, but recently they've started to pop up in the news. Perhaps you even saw John Oliver's overview of this ongoing situation. Recently, it's been announced that the Sackler family is going to relinquish their ownership over Purdue, the company that bears the lion's share of the opioid crisis. This might sound fantastic, but trust me, you'll want to hold off on any celebrations until the end. While the opioid crisis is incredibly complicated, we're going to focus on how Purdue and by extension, the Sackler family contributed to it. And this rabbit hole is going to be so deep and so complex that this is going to actually be the first of two parts. And as a content warning, suicide is going to be briefly mentioned and drug abuse is obviously going to be featured quite frequently throughout these two episodes. So let's get into it. Our story begins with Isaac Sackler and Sophie Greenberg. They arrived in New York before the First World War and had three sons, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond. Back in the 30s, brothers Mortimer and Raymond both traveled to Scotland because they claimed they weren't accepted by American universities due to their Jewish heritage. Arthur, the eldest, was able to earn his degree at New York University and all three brothers became psychiatrists. Given their similar interests, the brothers decided to go into business together and bought up a small New York City drug company that produced laxatives, Purdue Frederick. Later on, it became Purdue Pharma as we know it today. Some say this happened in 1952, while other sources cite the year 1953, but the point remains valid. While Raymond and Mortimer ran the company, Arthur was largely in charge of marketing. Although Arthur passed away and his shares were sold years before the controversy involving Oxy, sources point to his so-called playbook being used continuously in later years. Though many articles focus on Oxy, its marketing, and the epidemic in large part created by Purdue, the warning signs actually began quite early on. Patrick Keefe, an author about the Sacklers, writes that their sales force relied on, quote, medical literature often sponsored by the company that was maybe a little scientifically dubious, overstating the therapeutic benefits of the drug and understating the downside, end quote. Many sources built timelines around the Sacklers history, but I've seen quite a few that neglect to mention these early years, and it's understandable. As Valium, a tranquilizer used to treat anxiety, alcohol withdrawal, and muscle spasms is far less deadly than opioid medications. Still, I was really curious if Purdue by any chance at all started off with good intentions. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem that way. 
Throughout the 50s and 60s, Arthur created advertising campaigns for Valium and persuaded doctors to prescribe it by claiming that it had few side effects and wasn't addictive. He enlisted an entire army of sales representatives who worked for Roche, the company that made Valium and advocated for the virtues of the drug. According to Keefe, Arthur was interested in mingling medicine and commerce in a way that shaped the pharmaceutical industry. As early as 1980, the Washington Post called out Valium's questionable concerning advertising, which implied that it was a treatment for heart disease, ulcers, and several other conditions, which it wasn't. In 1981, Rudolf Nader's health research group asked the Food and Drug Administration to force Roche to run corrective advertising since the ads never warned that Valium isn't always safe, even when used at recommended doses. Arthur's advertising had a clinical look, a physician talking to a physician, but they were still ads, and if they weren't misleading, then they might be a downright lie instead. Keefe wrote in The New Yorker, Advertising has always entailed some degree of persuasive license and Arthur's techniques were sometimes blatantly deceptive. In the 1950s, he produced an ad for a new Pfizer antibiotic, Sigma Mycin, an array of doctor's business cards alongside the words, more and more physicians find Sigma Mycin the antibiotic therapy of choice. It was the medical equivalent of putting Mickey Mantle on a box of Wheaties. In 1959, an investigative reporter for the Saturday Review tried to contact some of the doctors whose names were on the cards. They did not exist. Arhat pushed Librium, a drug for anxiety and alcohol withdrawal, and Valium during the 60s so hard and so successfully that it made him rich. And in 1973, more than 100 million tranquilizer prescriptions were written a year. Wynne Gerson, one of Arthur's colleagues, has been quoted as saying, it kind of made junkies of people, but it worked. In 1979, Dr. Strobel, the head of the research at the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut, said that most of the medical community were treating Valium like Soma, the fictional drug depicted in the Aldous Huxley novel, Brave New World. The moment they saw someone with a stress-related disorder, they wrote a prescription for Valium. That's not to say every doctor at the time didn't care or treated their patients this way, but those who did overprescribe these drugs turned their patients into addicts whose drug dependencies often became worse than the underlying issues that they were supposedly treating. As early as the 1960s, Arthur Sackler had to testify before Estes Kefauver, a Tennessee Senator. Kefauver and his subcommittee were investigating the rapidly growing pharmaceutical industry, but Arthur was slippery, aloof, and impeccably prepared and ultimately he wasn't found responsible. By that point, only a decade after opening Purdue, the Sackler name had become completely integrated into the pharmaceutical industry. In a way, they became untouchable. In the 1970s, the Sacklers started spending some of their millions. They threw lavish parties, gave millions to the Met, as well as medical institutions like Tufts. Arthur passed away in 1987 and his third wife, Jillian, along with his children, fought bitterly with his brothers over his estate. Mortimer and Raymond changed the company name to Purdue Pharma, and by the time they bought out Arthur's family, they were already working on painkillers. The 1980s and early 90s were huge for the Sackler brothers, according to The New Yorker. Raymond and Mortimer Sackler had a great success at Purdue with an innovative painkiller called MS Coton, a morphine pill that had a patented controlled release formula. The drug dissolved gradually into the bloodstream over several hours. Contin was short for continuous. MS Contin became the biggest seller in Purdue's history, but by the late 80s, its patent was about to expire and Purdue executives started looking for a drug to replace it. Raymond's son, Richard, worked alongside his father and uncle to help this mystery drug, oxycodone. It had already been used in other drugs before to some extent, like Percodan and Percocet. 
but Purdue developed a pill of pure oxycodone with a similar time release formula. As Barry Meyer wrote in his book, Painkiller, in terms of narcotic firepower, OxyContin was a nuclear weapon. In 1990, opioid medications became more widely used as the belief that chronic pain was being inadequately treated was spreading. And true or not, this was excellent news for Purdue. In 1993, for example, Russell Portnoy, a pain specialist, told the Times that opioids were a gift from nature and needed to be destigmatized. While he definitely wasn't wrong about the need to treat chronic pain, this attitude made Oxy so non-threatening and it increased its demand. Worse yet, in 1995, when the FDA approved OxyContin, they didn't just say the drug was safe, but also approved a package insert that claimed it was safer than other painkillers on the market. No studies whatsoever were done to prove this. Purdue simply said it was true because their time-release formula was believed to reduce the abuse liability. However, invalidating this time-release formula was as easy as breaking, chewing, or crushing up the tablets, rendering it essentially useless. And yet the FDA allowed them to make the claims anyway. From that point forward, the way Purdue marketed Oxy was honestly horrific. Stephen May, who joined Purdue as an OxyContin sales rep in 1999, says that, quote, at the time, we felt like we were doing a righteous thing. There's millions of people in pain and we have the solution, end quote. David Kessler, the former FDA commissioner, has said that because of Oxy's power and addictive qualities, Purdue should have been able to sell the smallest dose of the drug to the smallest number of patients. But instead of showing a shred of morality, Purdue went after dollar bills. Last week tonight aired a 1997 clip of a Purdue motivational sales meeting that sums up their approach pretty nicely. It shows their vice president of sales as well as a singer on stage performing a cover of the song Shout with the lyrics, you know you make me wanna sell, OxyContin, sell, come on now, we're Purdue now, sell. Aside from this sickening display, Purdue paid several thousand clinicians to attend medical conferences and talk about the benefits of Oxy. These doctors would write Oxy prescriptions twice as frequently as those that didn't attend these seminars. Sales reps learned how to overcome objections from doctors by saying things like, it's virtually non-addicting. Purdue would also target general practitioners, not pain specialists, and patients who are more likely to be opioid naive. My source reads, a major thrust of the sales campaign was that OxyContin should be prescribed not merely for the kind of severe short-term pain associated with surgery or cancer, but also for less acute, longer lasting pain, arthritis, back pain, sports injuries, fibromyalgia. The number of conditions that Oxy could treat seemed almost unlimited. According to internal documents, Purdue officials discovered that many doctors wrongly assumed that oxycodone was less potent than morphine, a misconception that the company exploited. Purdue knew exactly what they were doing. In short, it most certainly seems like it. And they've taken Arthur's methods to the very next level. It didn't help that once again, the environment backed them up. For example, despite Purdue knowing how addictive Oxy was and that opioids aren't even effective for long-term pain because patients build up a tolerance, a widely cited 1986 study advocated for opioids to treat chronic pain unrelated to cancer. The study only involved 38 people. Another study in 1980 reported that only four people became addicted out of almost 12,000 hospitalized patients who were prescribed opioids, but no evidence was found to back up those claims. Many doctors are in private practice in the US, which also benefited Purdue. Prescribing pain meds ensured patient satisfaction. Plus opioids are cheap in the short term and health insurance plans tend to cover medication more often than physical therapy and pain management approaches. This allowed doctors to see more patients. It seemed like a win-win for both Purdue and the doctors they sold to. 
The reason why I mentioned this at all is because it's important to recognize that Purdue didn't just change the marketing game when it came to opioids, but they took advantage of people's vulnerability. These prescriptions were already on the rise, but once Oxy was introduced and perceived as the so-called safe alternative, opioid use became widespread. The opportunity and need was there, and because of that, people didn't seem to have their defenses up. The Federation of State Medical Boards certainly didn't anyway, as they assured doctors in the 90s that doctors wouldn't face any sort of regulatory action for prescribing large amounts of opioids. The FDA, the Federation, and naive doctors enabled Purdue, and patients were about to suffer for it. Now, if I tried to discuss every single way in which the opioid epidemic thrived, we'd be here for a very, very, very long time. But allow me to touch on just a few of the most important points and what was done during these early days. Not only was Oxy generating a billion dollars a year within five years of its introduction, successful salespeople were rewarded with vacations and over $40 million were paid out in bonuses in 2001 alone. According to one source, racial attitudes and socioeconomic trends also helped the opioid epidemic to gain a foothold in the United States. Purdue Pharma focused on the initial marketing of OxyContin on suburban and rural white communities. That strategy took advantage of the prevailing image of a drug addict as an African-American or Hispanic person who lived in the inner city to head off potential concerns about addictions as Helena Hansen, an anthropologist and psychiatrist at NYU Langone Health in New York City. The company targeted doctors who were serving patients that were not thought to be at risk for addiction, Hansen says. There was a definite racial subtext to that. The hardest hit communities can be found in the United States of West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and New Hampshire. They're communities where there is a problem of underemployment. There is a problem of concentration of poverty, says Magdalena Cerda, an epidemiologist at NYU Langone Health. The term deaths of despair has arisen to describe the suicides and opioid overdose deaths of white people in parts of the United States that have been affected by deindustrialization and economic decline. Since 2013, demographics have shifted and more African-American communities have become impacted by opioids. Barry Meyer, the author of Painkiller and a journalist for the New York Times began sounding the alarm as early as 2001. He and co-author Francis Kleins wrote that year that illicit dealers were using suffering patients and fakers to doctor shop to obtain Oxy. Once that time-release protection proved pretty easy to get around. Police at the time said that Oxy could cost as much as heroin or more on the streets and the abuse of the drug was growing rapidly, sending off waves of pharmacy break-ins, overdoses in emergency rooms and causing dozens of deaths. Purdue denied this even as Jay McCloskey, the US attorney for Maine said that rural areas are being affected, including those in his own state, despite having no drug problems in the past. A disturbing number of high school kids and young adults in their early 20s were also getting addicted. Roy W. Hatfield, the police chief of Harlan, Kentucky said, in the last year, this drug has really shown up around here, pushing out all the old stuff, marijuana, barbiturates. People think it's a legal way to stay high, but now they're discovering how easy it is to get addicted. It certainly didn't help that Purdue was continually lying about their product and using even shadier tactics to market it than Arthur did with Valium. Barry wrote another article in 2001 explaining that their aggressive marketing promising Oxy was less prone to abuse was a major factor in why so many doctors prescribed it. One of the top executives at Purdue, Paul Goldenheim denied this. When a representative of Kentucky told him, quote, your company did nothing and people were dying, end quote, Goldenheim said it wasn't their fault and that they can't stop doctors from prescribing their product. 
And I agree, Purdue can't stop doctors from writing prescriptions, but they certainly could have stopped spreading the misinformation that led to these prescriptions being written in the first place. In 2001, about 300 deaths could be attributed to Purdue. As we know, that number is about to get a lot higher. Not only did Purdue market OxyContin as safe and superior, but they actively chose not to use a drug abuse safeguard. They could have added a compound that blocks the drug's narcotic effects when it's crushed, injected, or snorted, but Purdue says they didn't expect anyone to misuse their products, so they didn't consider putting it in the safeguard. As the deputy director of the Division of Diversion Control at the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, Terry Woodworth said, this should have dawned on them before. Purdue knew that their marketing led to abuse in the past. They knew that there was a high risk of addiction and they did nothing. Therefore, the whole, we couldn't know how people would use it excuse isn't going to fly here. Plus, even when Purdue was pressured to add these safeguards, they acted incredibly slowly. This article reads, another manufacturer, Reckitt Benkiser Pharmaceuticals, which makes Bioprenophine another painkiller, also added nalazone when the drug became abused in New Zealand in the 1980s, said Charles O'Keefe, the president of the company. As with Talwin, abuse of the compound quickly dropped. A German manufacturer also took similar steps when one of its products was abused, Mr. O'Keefe said. Experts said it took about a year or less to reformulate both Talwin and buprenorphine. Mr. Woodworth, the DEA official, said he was troubled by Purdue's timetable. The reformulation is a good initiative, said Mr. Woodworth, but completing it four years out is not helpful in addressing the immediate diversion problems, which are rapidly increasing. The idea that Purdue didn't know people would abuse Oxy in this way is a sickening joke for a whole other reason. They were the ones who told people how to work around this time release in the first place. One of their warning labels, the one that came with each and every prescription, said taking broken, chewed, or crushed OxyContin tablets would lead to rapid release and absorption. Not only was Purdue very aware of this issue and slow to resolve it, but they were giving people instructions about how to abuse the very drug they were in charge of. While Purdue dragged its feet to make real changes, the number of those addicted to Oxy continued to climb. A small practice in North Carolina run by Dr. Talley was shoved into the spotlight when the DEA claimed that at least 23 former patients of this practice died. And they died, at least in part, due to drug overdoses. Dr. Talley admitted that he had no real formal training in pain and his specialty was actually treating depression. Yet he still pointed to studies that found chronic pain patients could be treated with narcotics without fear of addiction. When I heard about those studies, I was dancing in the street, he said. As we know, those studies have incredibly limited value, but Tally seemed to have no regard for that. About 30% of his patients were prescribed Oxy and when told his rates made him the highest prescriber of Oxy in the country, Tally accused other doctors of not doing their jobs correctly by not giving people Oxy. Aside from the marketing and advertising, the abuse of Oxy also comes down to the dosage. Doctors have said, if a patient is taking more painkillers than prescribed, that's their problem, not the doctor's. And to some extent, yes, that's true. Only take what you're prescribed. That's common sense, right? But on the other side of the coin, there's the fact that Purdue purposefully set these patients up for failure. The New Yorker writes, One of Purdue's initial advertising campaigns featured a photograph of two little dosage cups, one marked 8 a.m. and the other marked 8 p.m. And the words, remember, effective relief takes just two. But internal Purdue documents, which have emerged through litigation, show that even before the company received FDA approval, it was aware that not all patients who took OxyContin were achieving 12-hour relief. A recent expose by the Los Angeles Times revealed that the first patients to use OxyContin in a study conducted by Purdue 
were 90% women recovering from surgery in Puerto Rico. Roughly half the women required more medication before the 12-hour mark. The study was never published. For Purdue, the business reason for obscuring the results was clear. The claim of 12-hour relief was an invaluable marketing tool. But prescribing a pill on a 12-hour schedule when for many patients it works only eight is a recipe for withdrawal, addiction, and abuse. Notwithstanding Purdue's claims, many people who were not drug abusers and only took OxyContin exactly as their doctors instructed began experiencing withdrawal symptoms between doses. Even if you followed your doctor's orders perfectly, that didn't mean you wouldn't suffer. I took a look at this LA Times expose and it will obviously be down in my sources as well if you wanna read through it, but Purdue deliberately told doctors to prescribe stronger doses, not more frequent ones, when patients began to complain. And these withdrawals create body aches, nausea, anxiety, and a whole host of other symptoms. The moment the patient is relieved by the next dose, the risk of dependency and abuse increases. One woman named Elizabeth Kipp describes her experience with Oxy in this article and explains that she struggled with back pain since 14 years old when she was thrown from a horse. Then when she was 42 years old in 1996, her doctor prescribed her OxyContin and told her to take it every 12 hours. Kip is a scientist, very regimented, and so she followed his instructions perfectly. According to Kip, for the first two or three hours, she experienced a modicum of relief. Then her pain roared back, accompanied by nausea, she said in an interview. Only the next pill would relieve her suffering. She spent hours lying rigidly on her bed, waiting. I was watching the clock. What time is it? Oh God, I have to medicate, she said. My whole nervous system is on red alert. When she complained to her doctor, he gave her stronger doses, but kept her on the 12-hour schedule, just as Purdue instructs. For a year and a half, Kip cycled through misery and relief, some days even contemplating taking her own life. Eventually, she checked into rehab and no longer takes painkillers. Back in the early 2000s, people like Kip started to form their own group dedicated to taking on Purdue. RAP, Relatives Against Purdue Pharma, testified at hearings and marched outside pharmaceutical-funded physician meetings. They only had four members at the very beginning, but their numbers grew quickly. Their leader, Ed Bish, lost his 18-year-old son, Eddie, in 2001. Purdue tried to convince him and everyone else that the abusers were the problem, even convincing him to change the name of his message board to Oxy Abuse Kills and giving him a $10,000 grant to put towards education efforts. Yet Bish continued to receive email after email from those who had relatives die after becoming addicted to Oxy. Something needed to be done. And before we jump into said litigation, let's just take a quick moment to have a sponsor break. Once upon a time, if I shaved my legs, I would step out of the shower looking like I was on the losing end of a battle with a tiny ferocious animal. So many cuts, too much blood. Because no matter how hard I would try, I couldn't ever shave around my knees or ankles without there being some kind of bloodletting. But no longer, thanks to Athena Club. Athena Club's razor has built-in skin guards that are gentle on curves and help prevent razor burn. Their razor blade is surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, and their razor kit is only nine bucks with two blade heads. And you don't just get a razor and two blade heads and good luck, you're also gonna get a magnetic hook for shower storage and your choice of handle color. And they have six colors right now. Every once in a while, they have these limited edition colors that come out. My dumb ass missed out on the lilac color. And when I say I am not missing it twice, I mean it. I will not miss it twice. If they bring the lilac color back, I am buying it ASAP. I have the coral one, which I like, but the lilac one was just calling to me and I didn't get there on time. And that's a me problem. 
Oh, and as for those razor blades, you can choose how often you want your replacement sent to you. So you can just let it roll on an auto schedule. So it just always shows up. You don't have to think about it anymore. That's probably one of the best features from Athena Club, honestly. So show your skin you care with the Athena Club razor kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code CASKET. That's athenaclub.com with promo code CASKET for 20% off. Working on our mental health is never a bad idea. And Talkspace makes it easy to talk with a licensed therapist right from your own device and get the guidance or help you might need. With the holiday season coming up, it's pretty obvious that for some of us that may be not as close with friends or family that it becomes kind of lonely. Like I like the quiet, but then every once in a while it gets a little lonely and I realize that maybe I want someone to talk to. And that's what's really great about Talkspace is I can just have someone pretty much on my phone essentially that I can schedule a time with and meet with them and talk about whatever is going on. Because the reality is big, massive, disastrous problems internally or externally, they usually snowball from smaller things that have built up over time. So the best way to help take care of yourself is through maintenance. And sometimes that includes mental maintenance. Talkspace makes your privacy and security their number one priority. Their encryption keeps all of your conversations fully protected. So it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, what you're dealing with or what you might need help with. Talkspace gives you the access to help you so that you can start moving forward. Join Talkspace today and start moving forward with a single message. Just visit Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month when you use promo code CASKET at signup. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code CASKET. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids, but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than- Legal action has been brought against Purdue numerous times. In 2006, a New York trial lawyer named Paul Hanley assembled a suit and signed up 5,000 patients who said they became addicted to Oxy, even after following their prescription. He stated, They demonstrated that this company has set out to perpetuate a fraud on the entire medical community. These pronouncements about how safe the drug was emanated from the marketing department, not the scientific department. It was pretty shocking. They just made this stuff up. Purdue settled for $75 million, but Richard Sackler, despite his leadership role, wasn't charged. And by leadership role, I don't mean that he solely sat behind a desk unaware of what his salespeople were saying. He rode along with these salespeople, visiting doctors' offices with them and actively partaking in the deception. Mike Moore, Mississippi's attorney general, has called Purdue the Sackler Company, and he sums it up nicely when he says, they are the main culprit. They duped the FDA, saying it lasted 12 hours. They lied about the addictive properties, and they did all this to grow the opioid market, to make it okay to jump in the water. Then some of these companies, they saw that the water was warm and they said, okay, we can jump in too. Moore has been involved in tobacco litigation in the past, and even though there's a massive difference between tobacco and opioids, he argued that the ethical parallel is the same. They profit from killing people. The first noteworthy action taken against Purdue came in 2007. 
The FDA had issued them a warning letter in 2003, but four years later, a 26 state lawsuit was brought against the company, alleging that Purdue misled regulators, doctors, and patients about the drug's risk of addiction. Purdue had to pay $600 million in fines. And this suit unveiled a lot of disturbing information, like how company sales officials were allowed to draw their own fake scientific charts, which they then distributed to doctors. Between 1995 and 2001, Oxy brought in $2.8 billion in sales for Purdue, at one point accounting for 90% of their sales. Purdue benefited from their lies hugely while everyone else suffered. Apart from Purdue, three top executives also pled guilty to misbranding, a criminal violation. They paid $34.5 million in fines. Michael Friedman, the company's president, Howard Udell, its top lawyer, and Paul Goldenheim, the former medical director, were all named. Purdue isn't just a nameless and faceless company after all. It's run by individuals that deserve to be held accountable for their actions. Richard Sackler, however, urged Purdue to blame patients at every turn. We have to hammer on abusers in every way possible, he wrote in a 2001 email. They are the culprits and the problem. They are reckless criminals. All four of the original rap members spoke at the hearing, the relatives of these so-called reckless criminals. According to my source, one of them, Ed Vanicki, had fed evidence to the Virginia prosecutors, including a now infamous cassette tape of a public relations conference in which a Purdue spokesman brushed off the problems of oxycodone in Appalachia saying, the fact is these rural areas have had problems with prescription drug abuse since the civil war. Addicted people are still people. Though I've always promoted the mindset that you are responsible for your own actions, that doesn't mean we can't have any sympathy and recognize the traps that companies like Purdue set. Purdue quickly pointed the finger at individuals who abused Oxy without looking at how they could better help those dying from their own product. In fact, it wasn't until 2010 that Purdue finally revamped their formulation, making Oxy crush and tamper resistant. Yet this did nothing to reduce the magnitude of addiction. Instead, rates continued to climb. Purdue increased Oxy's price more than 95%, claiming that the anti-abuse features warranted the cost and the nonprofit group Institute for Clinical and Economic Review found mixed evidence about the effectiveness of Oxy's anti-abuse features. Among long-term users, misuse was almost unchanged. The Sacklers and Purdue promoted a highly addictive substance, falsely representing it and happily profited from the opioid crisis they created for over a decade. By the time Purdue added the anti-abuse features to Oxy, it was too late. In later years, Purdue wanted to spread overseas, seeming to find new ways to earn money. Thankfully, several members of Congress who recognized the damage Purdue had done wrote to the World Health Organization to prevent others from being subjected to it. To date, over half a million people have died from opioid overdoses. The CDC explains that there have been multiple waves of the epidemic, but the first one, The rise in prescription overdose deaths is in massive part due to Purdue and the Sacklers. Now, before I attribute any more blame, I want to pause to talk about Arthur for just a moment as there's been a lot of controversy and debate as to his personal involvement. Arthur did do some good as he successfully advocated for the racial integration of New York City's blood banks and gentler alternatives to electroshock therapy. Yet his marketing practice, direct marketing to doctors stuck. As Arthur passed away in the 80s, there's a lot of debate whether he's at all responsible for the events that followed. I do understand both sides of the argument here. Some say that his marketing techniques enabled the opioid epidemic, while others say that it's not logical to blame him for something using his technique to promote dangerously addictive painkillers after his death. His wife, for example, wrote a piece in the Washington Post where she stated, Purdue Pharma in its current form was founded by Arthur's younger brothers, Mortimer and Raymond, four years after his death. 
none of the 1600 plus lawsuits filed against Purdue Pharma, members of the Sackler family or others in the opioid business names Arthur or his heirs as defendants. Arthur died of a heart attack nearly 32 years ago at age 73, nearly a decade before OxyContin came to market. It is incredible to me that last year, the Smithsonian's Arthur M. Sackler Gallery of Art was the target of demonstrators protesting the opioid crisis. Other institutions that benefited from his philanthropy have also been targeted. Even critics who acknowledge that Arthur died long before the invention of OxyContin nevertheless maintain that he somehow shares responsibility for this scourge because he was a pioneer in medical marketing and medical marketing has encouraged the spread of OxyContin. Arthur is not here to answer back, but I can tell you that blaming him for OxyContin's marketing or for any other wrongdoing by the pharmaceutical industry is as ludicrous as blaming the inventor of the mimeograph for email spam. First and foremost, comparing email spam to an opioid epidemic seems a bit out of touch to put it mildly. Secondly, even if Arthur wasn't involved in Oxy's marketing, I would argue that Arthur himself saw the damage his techniques wrought with drugs like Valium. Even though Arthur and his particular descendants weren't directly involved in these scandals to come, doesn't mean the outrage against him isn't justified. There are levels of guilt here. He may not have committed the crime, but he created the weapons and placed them into his brother's hands. However, now that we've gone over the marketing, the false advertising and touched upon Purdue's history, we're going to get into some of the more recent controversies and where that leaves us in the next episode. So hopefully I'll see you then in part two about Purdue and the Sackler family. But for today, that is where we are ending today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new and again, stay tuned for the next episode. I'll see you then.